adventures between the Arctic and Antarctic. Listen to Arvid Fuchs on the Ocean Change podcast. Welcome to this podcast episode. This is Babel in Hamburg. Hi, hi, and this is Arvid in Bad Bramstein. Not on the shipyard, Arvid. Uh, not right now. So I spent a lot of time on the shipyard and uh, last weekend. So we, we finished basically the work on the boat. So we put up the sails and uh, put everything together, cleaned up the mess. And uh, so uh, we're getting ready to leave the shipyard the day after tomorrow. So on, on Thursday. Dagma is already afloat again. Yeah, the boat is afloat again, and uh, so uh, everything worked out perfect, basically. And uh, yeah, so uh, the the shipyard did a marvelous job, and uh, and the crew as well. So uh, it was a lot of crew last weekend to get everything in shipshape order, and uh, so uh, yeah. And I'm looking forward to uh, to put to sea again. Yeah. <laughs> There are only a few weeks left until you start your next expedition. Yes. So uh, first of all, we will go back from the shipyard to to Flensburg, which is basically the home port of Dagmaon. And uh, so, of course, there will be some minor jobs to be done. And then we will have to put all the supplies on the boat. And we will also go, uh, sail to Kiel. Uh, where the Geomar is uh, the scientific institute and we will get the scientific equipment on board and uh, we will also have to do some crew training and training with the scientific equipment. So it's it's going to be a busy time anyway for the next couple of weeks. So I don't know whether we have talked about this topic already. The Dagmar Orn is equipped with scientific uh, measurements and with high-end marine technology to gain data during your expedition. Yes, we have a cooperation with the various uh, institutes and uh, also universities. And uh, so uh, we are equipped with, uh, well, as you said, with high-end uh, scientific equipment to measure, for example, the CO2 uh, in the seawater, the temperature, salinity, and uh, other things and uh, all these uh, datas will be transferred via satellite directly to the institutes and that's where the specialists and scientists sit and uh, work with these data so uh, they call us ship of opportunity because uh, we are sailing in areas where usually no others sailing around and so since we we are equipped with all this uh, high-tech uh, instruments so we are able to collect all these data the scientists appreciate these data because uh, i think only seven percent of the seabed is known so far and so they are longing for more data we hardly know in what condition our oceans are Yeah, the body of the of the ocean water is uh, is not the same everywhere. So it's changing uh, basically by the meter and all the chemical ingredients. Basically, they can uh, change from from one area to the other. And um, before I started 
this kind of work. So I, I, I had the feeling that uh, via satellite you can get all the data necessary and uh, everything should be known by now. But this is certainly not the case. And if you speak to scientists, they said we need data, 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 because uh, uh, as you said, it's just uh, such a vast area to cover. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, that's, we, we are doing it volunteering. So it, it's not that we make any money with collecting these data. So we just take the scientific equipment along and do whatever we can on, on a small boat like the Dark Mahon. But uh, due to these um, high sophisticated instruments, so you can uh, collect very precisely data which are very valuable for the scientists to, to work with. So on the one hand, it's this old wooden ship, 92-year-old Dagmar on, and on the other hand, it's high-end technology under deck. And you equipped your ship with this technology because you have become eyewitness of climate change during all your expeditions. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a good combination since we are sailing into areas where hardly any other boat goes and uh, also the, the the big scientific research ships they sometimes can't go to these areas um, where we go because their draft is too big and they they just can't uh, get close to the shores and uh, but we we can and uh, so um, i think it's uh, uh, it's 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 a big combination so we are just adding data to the scientists and uh, uh, i'm i'm personally convinced that everybody has to make some kind of contribution to uh, uh, yeah to help solving this problem of, of of climate change and that's what we can do and we are happy to do that one place where you experience climate change or one one region where you experienced climate change was the Northwest Passage, which you, which you sailed two times. In 1993, the first time when you got stuck in ice and you experienced heavy storms. And uh, the second time you've been there was in 2002, 2002, 2003, actually. And you experienced a different Northwest Passage. Yeah, if you do it at all, you usually sail only once in your lifetime through the passage. So uh, uh, in 1993, as you mentioned, it was not an easy piece of cake to, to get through the passage. And uh, so when we finally got through, so we were, were happy, we were delighted. And I said, so this is something you do once in your lifetime. And I, I didn't have the idea... Uh, to to not even thinking about to do it a second time, so but things changed in in in, in the matter of time. And uh, in two thousand and two, we f finally got through the northeast passage on the Siberian side after we failed three times in the nineties. And in two thousand and two, it was um, it was not difficult by any means. So it was uh, here and there an ice flow, but basically you could easily negotiate the ice and just uh, navigate around them and at the end of the summer we passed uh, the Bering Strait and we're in the Bering Sea and we just finished the Northeast Passage and so that was an experience with 
put up many questions for me. Was it just uh, an irregular year or was it a matter of climate change? So, and I asked myself what the situation would be in the Northwest Passage, which we had uh, passed, yeah, in 2002. It was nine years earlier. And originally we, we said, well, after spending four years in, in the ice, in the polar ice, wintering in Siberia and in other places and in, in very cold areas, so we had the longing to sail down south to the Pacific to visit uh, <laughs> the tropical islands and uh, sit on a beach with a cool drink and, and just enjoy the warmth and, and the sun. But uh, after passing through the passage uh, with hardly any eyes left at all, so I said, "Well, it's it's just it's just not on." So I mean, you you, you just pass through the Northwest Passage nine years earlier, and you just have to look at it again and see if if there are also changes taking place, or if it's only on the eastern side in Siberia, or, or what's going on. So and, uh, I decided to spend the winter in Dachaba on the Aleutian Island and uh, further down south in, in Alaska. And then we, we started sailing again uh, up north and went into the passage for a second time. So in, in, in 93, I would never have expected that I would be doing this. And the second time, did you get stuck in the ice again? Did you experience ice pressings again? <laughs> Or what, was it a completely different situation? It was different. So we stopped at various places which we had visited 10 years earlier. For example, Point Barrow, which is the northernmost settlement in Alaska. And the houses were built on permafrost, so which is solid as concrete. And uh, so nobody, in 93, nobody was talking about climate change. 10 years later, the permafrost was thawing. So you could even see it. And some of the houses was being washed by, by the sea. And then on some other settlements like Shishmaref and Kivalina, they had to be moved further inland because uh, uh, the coastline was eroded. And, and you could see it. I mean, it was not just like uh, taking measurements and saying it's getting warmer or whatever, but the, uh, in, in, in 10 years' time, so the, the area was uh, changing dramatically. Also, the locals told us that uh, they have different insects and uh, that the sea ice is receding, that they get more storms, so the weather patterns were changing. So it was pretty dramatic, actually. And uh, then we kept sailing further to the east, and uh, we ended up getting stuck in the ice. And uh, so because there was a lot of ice in, in, in the eastern part of, of the passage, and, and we asked ourselves again, well, here is the ice. So uh, what is the discussion about, about uh, climate change? And uh, maybe it's here and there, but in general, there's a lot of ice. But if you had a look at the ice chart at that time, you could see that the Siberian coast was mainly ice-free again, and uh, that there was just a whole lot of ice in the eastern part of the Northwest Passage. And we had to overwinter in, in, in Cambridge Bay in, in a small uh, settlement halfway through the passage. And in 2004, we managed to get um, uh, through the rest of the passage, so for the second time. Um, but of course, you could see changes, but it's not that the ice is 
all gone from one year to the other or not even in between 10 years. But um, the ice situation was changing dramatically and uh, you you could see that uh, also the ice uh, type was different you are talking about multi-year ice which is very hard very strong uh, because it survived several winters and melting seasons and uh, so eventually it gets very thick and very hard but there was hardly any multi-year ice left it was first year ice which is uh, well one and a half to two meters thick uh, for an icebreaker, it's it's uh, no big deal, but for for a wooden boat, uh, it's too thick anyway. So, uh, but you could see the changes taking place in the ice already in two thousand and four. And the scientists had uh, recognized the developments and the the new situation, and they gave warnings. Well, they started to give warnings much, much earlier than 2003. They started in, in the mid-70s, actually. And uh, so, uh, of course, there was always a discussion whether it's man-made or not, and uh, whether there might be various reasons, or maybe it's just a normal climate change. But we are talking about a couple of years, about decades, which is uh, uh, it's, it's a very short period of time. Uh, considering that we are talking about climate changing that are taking place, which usually take hundreds of years or whatever, uh, so that uh, the climate is changing. But this was in between a decade. And um, so, and, and there were a couple of scientists all over the world, I must say, that were pu putting out warnings saying, well, we have to stop the CO2 emissions. The atmosphere is uh, heating up, it's getting warmer and warmer and the Arctic is warming up three times as fast as the rest of the world. So it's a, like a distant early warning system uh, for the climate that uh, is the Arctic. And uh, you could see it there firsthand. And only a couple of years later, the passage was ice-free. Yeah, in 2004, we were late in the season and we were lucky to get through. There was still a lot of ice. Uh, but... A few years later, I think three, four years later, there was a passenger ship called the Crystal Serenity that passed through the passage. And I saw an interview with the captain of the ship on TV. And it was a 250 meter long cruise ship with no ice class with 1,500 passengers on board. And I think about 800 crew. And they just went through the passage without even hitting some ice flows. And the captain said, we, we have no ice class. We, we, we must not meet or hit any ice. And they just did it just like that. Uh, the following year, there was a bit more ice left. But uh, if you would have asked me in 2003 or four if I could imagine that a cruise ship about that size without ice class would ever manage to get through the passage, I would have said, maybe in 50 years, but not a couple of years later. You passed the passage twice. Since when were you fascinated by the Northwest Passage? Well, I think I, I, I told you, Babel, that I grew up with books about polar explorations where the explorers like uh, Friedhof Nansen, Roald Amundsen, Shackleton, and, uh, and all the rest of them. <laughs> and uh, so I was just fascinated by, by the books. And uh, eventually I 
came across a book about the Northwest Passage and also Amundsen who was the first to to sail through the passage with the ship Jöa actually a similar boat like like our Dagmaon slightly bigger but but not much and uh, so he, it took him 3 years to get through the passage but anyway he he managed to do so and uh, and um, in 1840 45, 48, there was a British expedition from John Franklin, which was organized and financed by the British Admiralty, well equipped uh, by all standards for this time. Um, but they failed, so they got lost with 129 men and all ship, both ships were lost. And um, the Canadian government managed to, to find them just a couple of years ago. Uh, but there's still the myth what, what was going on. And uh, uh, so there was also stories about cannibalism that took place because they starved to death. And, and, and it must have been a very, very desperate and uh, situation in which they, they were in. And so... Uh, I didn't want to 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 came in, in a similar situation, so I, I rather uh, took it with Amundsen, who was well prepared, and uh, all his crew survived except one actually who died, but not by an accident, and uh, so by uh, some disease. And um, so, uh, but uh, I uh, yeah, I, I wanted to sail through. It was a dream, like uh, skiing to the North Pole or crossing uh, Antarctica. So it was just one of these dreams I had since I was a boy. These were your three main goals? Well, not only the Northwest Passage, the dream was to, to circumnavigate the North Pole. So uh, to become the first uh, surface vessel to manage to circumnavigate both passages, the Northeast and the Northwest Passage. And that's what we did, actually. Wow, Arvid. You made your dream come true. But it challenged you. The passage challenged you a lot. What was the most challenging part of it? Uh, well, it's it's hard to say. But uh, starting with the Northeast Passage in 1999, so where you didn't have access to all the the ice charts and and the communication systems which you have nowadays, there was no satellite communication. You were very much on your own, and uh, you had to make a decision every day, and it had to be the right decision. Otherwise, you uh, could have easily lost your boat, and uh, so. It, it was was a challenge, and when we sailed through the passage, the Northwest Passage, in, in 2003, it, it was already different. But still, you didn't have access to uh, all the modern satellite communication, which improves by the year nowadays. You get better and better equipment, and you have um, internet access even at the North Pole if, if uh, you can afford to pay the rates. So uh, it's it, it, from the technical point of view it's possible but at that time it wasn't possible and so in the 90s it was was really a different story um, if you compare it to boats that sail through the passage nowadays and uh, that was probably the, the biggest challenge but don't you say this with a knowledge of of today and with a knowledge of what's uh, technically possible I mean, at that point, did you have the feeling that you didn't have enough information about the the ice? I mean, you had these ice charts once a week or twice a week or so, and that was more than Amundsen had at his point. 
Yes, that's absolutely true. And uh, in that time, it was it was standard that you had an HF radio and you, that you could communicate with some coastal stations or with uh, some some people who were ham operators or whatever and that you would get uh, some ice information but it was usually it was a couple of days old the ice information which you could get and nowadays you will get uh, real-time update information about the ice uh, so it's, it's totally different but for us it was a big improvement compared uh, to the situation Amund or even Franklin were in. They, they didn't have HF radios and, and coastal stations. So we were much better, uh, much better equipped than they were. And we knew, of course, more about them. We had, for example, nautical charts about the Northwest Passage, which they, of course, didn't have. So, uh, no, for us, it was easier than, uh, than for Amundsen, but this is always the case. So being the first to, to do something, it's the hardest work. Wow, yes. <laughs> and uh, the technique always will improve and improve and improve. And 10 years from now, different things will be possible, which we don't expect now or which we don't even dream of now. Yeah, but it's also a bit sad, Barbara. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the the passages were were booth and uh, nobody was really interested in it. So also from the political point of view, so uh, it was a no go area basically. So only some crazy persons like us and some others uh, who tried to uh, yeah to to get through them and some official icebreakers would manage to get through but uh, there was hardly anybody who was interested in it and uh, so since the ice is receding all of a sudden it uh, has become political and uh, also nations are interested in uh, recovering some oil and gas and and whatever is there in the arctic ocean and uh, so it, it, it has changed dramatically and so i'm i'm a bit unhappy about it i must admit because uh, not that i want the the good old times back but uh, so it's changing so fast and so dramatically and maybe in a couple of years um, we could sail across the arctic ocean in the middle of the summer without even uh, taking into consideration taking one of the passages so because the ice is loosening up it's melting it's 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 going away and uh, so and, and this is something which is happening in, in such a short period of time which is extremely dangerous and extremely worrisome so uh, so i'm i'm not happy with the situation and i don't care how many boats can get through there but it's more from the from the political point of view that it's uh, very tense and uh, that it's uh, not so relaxed and remote as it used to be it has nothing to do with the passage you you experienced uh, in 1993 not only because of the ice but at that time it was a very remote area where hardly any any ship was yes in 2007 for example the russians put a submarine down to the bottom of the north pole which is in the middle of the arctic ocean and 4000 meters deep there's some of these small scientific subs and they planted a 
a Russian titanium flag on the bottom of the sea. And this is like uh, the old gold diggers put their claims in, in some areas to, to claim that this is their area where they wanted look for gold and uh, it's not only an expedition it was uh, yeah putting your claim in an area and this is highly political because uh, the arctic ocean is the high sea which belongs to everybody basically to the to every nation uh, so but uh, there's a lot of tension going on especially in these times Mm, especially in these times, yes. Do you want to pass the passage for a third time? No, there is no reason why I should uh, try to do it again. So I've done it twice and I spent a lot of time in uh, the Northeast Passage and due to the political uh, situation, it's it's not on to to try again to, to get a permit. I, I don't want to get there with this political situation as it is nowadays. Um, but there are many other places to go and especially the Canadian Arctic is so big an area and there are so many interesting places which would be worth to visit so uh, just going through the passage to say i've done it three times now that's uh, a waste of time <laughs> okay i mean there are hardly any any um, adventurer who have done it twice or Uh, well, I know of one guy, uh, David Cowper, he's a friend of mine, he's British, and he sailed, I think, now six times or even seven oh, times wow. through the passage on, okay. on various <laughs> routes so with a specially designed boat. But he's a real expert, too. And uh, uh, so I have a lot of respect what he's doing. But uh, he, is, uh, he is addicted to the Northwest Passage. And so uh, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's something. Thing so he did, and uh, but uh, um, I'm not going to do it the same way. Okay, you are preparing your next expedition, and we we're gonna um, accompany you, and we're gonna talk to you again about uh, your preparations and the preparations of the Dagmar Orn. Yes, we will, Baba. Okay, thank you for your time, Arvid. Thank you for sharing this with us. And in case you want to listen to Arvid and me again, we recommend subscribing to this podcast because we um, publish our episodes irregularly. And so if you subscribe, you won't miss any new episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. That was the podcast Ocean Change by Arvid Fuchs and Bärbel Fenig.